Thank you so much for joining us here at Re-Encounters. Before this episode begins, it's important to say that this podcast may contain strong language and adult themes. It is also going to contain spoilers. So if you care about being surprised the first time you watch the source material of what we're talking about in this episode, then don't listen just yet. Go and watch or listen to it, take it in and come on back when you're ready. If you're like me and don't care about spoilers, then feel free to keep on listening. But don't say that we didn't warn you. All that being said, let's get started. Why, hello, everybody. Hello to you too, Sam. Hello, Boris. And yes, hello, everyone. Um, and welcome to a slightly new era um, of re-encounters with some very exciting developments. There'll be more to follow on those. <laughs> Indeed. And we're very excited, for instance, to be later on in the podcast welcoming our first guest contributor. Ooh, exciting time! Um, a new era indeed. A new era indeed. And that's super duper exciting. Um, more on who that is later. Yeah. Another change that we thought we'd introduce, before we say exactly what the film is... Well, or the, or the artwork that we're covering this time is, mm -hmm. um, we thought that we would go through our expectations first um, wow. to give some clues of exactly what it's going to be, um, along with those that you may have seen on social media before this. Yeah, so we're jumping right into our usual, not ramblings, but into our usual schedule, so to speak, for this podcast. And, you know, we won't be getting rid of all of the ramblings or all of the discussion, but just we wanted to make them a little bit more streamlined, let's say. Streamlined is a very good word. Um, Which is what not my thoughts are right now. <laughs> but we will get over that very swiftly. Yes. Starting with our expectations indeed. Yes, I will just um, flag beforehand that this is a film that I have seen before. Boris mm -hmm. hadn't exactly before we watched it together. And in my mind, it is one of the most influential films, but also it has a heck of a lot of influence in terms of um, Japanese cinema and world cinema and world uh, reactions and appetites for anime. Yes. Today we'll be covering an animated film from Japan. And before we go further to say the title of this film, I think I will start with my expectations for it. Yep. The first of my expectations being that I wanted and I did receive stunning visuals. This film delivered, but more on that later. And I also expected some of the images to be slightly meme -y. By meme I mean just sort of spoofable or referential in modern times. However, I could also see a lot of these still images being taken as screenshots, some text in Comic Sans being added on top of them, and created, therefore, a meme. Okay, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, I think I will follow on then with uh, some more of my expectations, one of which relates to the plot, and how confusing and hard to follow it may be, and it wouldn't necessarily be a linear plot. And further on, I expected my love for anime as a genre would grow even more after this. This film, or this artwork, would present me with a grittier side of anime rather than just the standard fantasy supernatural elements which I would have seen thus far in other media. I also expected for this artwork to be emotionally gut-wrenching and highly affecting on a personal human level due to the topics handled and their depiction via colorful imagery. Okay, yeah. 
I think that a lot of those probably got carried through um, and were delivered upon. I will share my expectations for Boris in Mm. terms of how I expected him to react. I will also say I've seen the film twice before. The first time was by myself. The second time I watched it with a couple of friends but I'd, ne- I'd never taken notes on it before. Um, so as as always, it's, it is a different experience for the person who is watching and has seen it before, um, as much as it is for the person who is seeing it for the first time. So my main expectations for Boris were that he would be impressed by the kind of atmospheric nature of the film and the way that it creates atmosphere and does world building. This is partly down to the visuals, um, mm-hmm. as he's mm-hmm. made reference to, but also down to the quite astonishingly good music. Yes. Which I did feel that um, Boris would be very impressed by, but also would probably think wasn't used in um, an ideal way throughout, <laughs> throughout the film. Um, I think you'd be impressed by the artistry of the mm. film, mm-hmm. see how influential it has been, but also the influences on it from other media, which um, we've seen. Yes, um, yes indeed. That it, it's quite referential to other points throughout film history. Mm-hmm. I think that you'd recognise just how much it has been kind of a, a, an influence, but also a catalyst on the way we see the anime takeover of a yeah. lot of culture today you know mm. um, how much of a flashpoint this film was especially in terms of anime being seen more frequently and becoming more popular in the west mm-hmm. i i thought you would be confused but also highly impressed and also completely weirded out in a trippy way by the almost art house aspects of the film <laughs> and the somewhat non-linear narrative um, the extremely complicated plot, which is kind of understandable for one reason or another. I mean, it's understandable that it's a complicated plot, and we'll get into that. But I thought that you would be carried through, not only by the visuals and, and the kind of artistry of it, the music, etc., but by some very fiercely compelling main characters. That is a very important point for any film and any art piece with a narrative and a plot and characters. They have to be strong enough to carry you forward. Yes, I think that's true, but I think that especially with a plot this confusing and wide-ranging, you need characters to keep you grounded in the story. Absolutely. Um, and in this case, I think that's extra important because we're dealing with a fil- an animated film that was meant to be adapting an entire manga. Um, and the manga, at the point at which it had been released, had been running for six years mm-hmm. and wasn't yet complete. Um, it was a tall order, definitely, for this film to succinctly put into two hours and a bit six years worth of material, which wasn't even completed yet. Mm. And in that case, the confusion and non-linearity of the plot are understandable. And I guess this is why we can now reveal the name of the film. Yes, the film is 1988's Akira, Akira. Um, which some of our listeners may have heard pronounced Akira. We may have further clarification on that later from uh, our guest. Mm, um, stay tuned. <laughs> Yes, Akira um, from 1988. It's one of the most influential. It's a very strange film um, in a lot of ways, but it became intensely popular. Mm-hmm. And some people say that it is kind of the culmination of what some people regard as the golden age of anime mm-hmm. from the mid to late 1980s. In the 1980s, Japan, much like the rest of the world, went through an era of relative economic boom. It was the first time since the Second World War in Japan that um, Japan's economy was 
quite stable, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Th- there were good times for the people of Japan. Relatively, yeah. yeah. Similar to a lot of places in the world, the, the 1980s was at least partly defined by years of economic boom. Yes, with a few blips along the way, and the same thing happened in Japan. There had always been artistic output coming mm-hmm. out of Japan, but this was a time when it, it, like the economy, reached a state where more things were being made. Animation was seen, especially within Japan, yeah. um, as being a worthwhile thing to spend your money on. And also to train oneself in creating that artwork and not simply viewing anime and or manga as children's material. Because at this point, or up until this point, I guess a lot of such animated material was seen as simply aimed for a more child-friendly audience. Whereas Akira really bucks that trend and truly presents philosophical existential topics in a gritty dystopian world. It's seen by some as being the pinnacle of Japanese cyberpunk, mm-hmm. um, at least within the 20th century. It could be argued that there have been other golden ages for anime since, mm-hmm. and that in some ways we're going through one right now. And anime has changed a lot. There's an argument to suggest that a lot of the younger fans of anime the world over might not know that much about Akira. Mm. Um, and it has to be said, you watch Akira now and... It doesn't bear that much of a resemblance to what we would understand of animation from Japan now. <laughs> um, but the, the heart and soul is still there. A lot of people, me included, would say that Akira actually is the entry point for anime finding its way into the West and becoming popular. It's it's an amazing film, um, a complicated film, adapting at least the first half of a <laughs> massively influential and powerful manga series um i'm very very excited to be talking about it and i was just as excited to watch and i can't wait to talk about it even more not just with you but also with our special guest later (laughs) on yes so now that we've um spoken about our expectations and revealed what the film is we're still keeping to certain aspects of our um former structure our certain linearity may remain in some capacity. Yes, we're not quite as non-linear as Akira is itself. Um, <laughs> but yes, um, I'm going to talk a bit about the plot. Oh the boy, okay. Yes, so bear with me here. I will try not to make it too long and I will try to explain some of the more overcomplicated pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, we open on a massive, what seems to be, explosion in Tokyo in the year 1988, um, which we later learn the explosion triggers a third world war. And pretty soon after this, we are introduced in a visually stunning sequence with a a wonderful accompaniment of music inspired by Indonesian gamelan drums Mm. um, to Neo-Tokyo, which is this sprawling metropolis. And we're introduced to uh, the leader of a biker gang called Shotaro Kaneda. Kaneda is a... How can one put this? He's he's hot-headed, he's quite arrogant, yep, um, yep. he's very full of himself, but he's very charming. You instantly like him. He's also very humorous. He is, he is. A lot of the humour and lighter moments of the script and the film are actually conveyed through Kaneda. Yeah. He's a very interesting protagonist, and whether or not he's even a protagonist at all will be a point of discussion. Haha. <laughs> We follow Kaneda and members of his biker gang, and Kaneda himself has a very impressive-looking high-tech red bike covered with stickers <laughs> um, and, and branding. Product placements. And through this, as I say, incredibly in, uh, beautiful sequence, he and members of his biker gang 
basically they, they attack members of another biker gang called the Clowns. Um, and we're introduced to another of the members of Kaneda's biker gang called Tetsuo Shima. Hmm. Uh, Tetsuo Shima is implied to be Kaneda's best friend, but they are also somewhat rivals. That They go through this kind of fight sequence. At the same time, we're introduced to two characters, mm -hmm. um, one of whom will last a lot longer than the other. <laughs> um, we're introduced to a man who is ferrying what seems to be a small child through the city. And the, the man who is escorting this child is um, shot by uh, the police mm -hmm. who were trying to put down a revolutionary protest. The figure who seems to be a child manages to escape. This figure, however, we see through the eyes of a young woman called Kay and her friend and superior Ryu. This child actually has white hair and blue skin mm -hmm. and quite a lot of wrinkles in their face. Mm -hmm. So that's... That's parked. Um, through the fight with the clowns, Kaneda and Tetsuo cause chaos, as I say. Tetsuo gets into a crash uh, because the child, who we saw disappear from the street with, with the blue skin, appears directly in front of his bike. Tetsuo gets quite badly injured. Kaneda and the rest of the gang catch up to him, but they arrive in time to see him and the child be taken away by a big shot in the army called Colonel Shikishima, um, mm. who is also accompanied by another of these children with bluish skin. That That's the kind of opening movement. 20, 30 minutes, <laughs> yeah. Um, Kaneda and other members of the gang are captured um, and interrogated by the police. Kaneda, in the midst of that, meets Kay. Kay, we discover, is an activist within the resistance movement against the government. Um, the government itself is another complicated plot point. Um, there used to be a prime minister and has been replaced by mm -hmm. an executive council who seem to be unwilling to let go of basically military maintained power over the city and we assume Japan at large. So just a lot of corruption going up in high echelons. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of different interlinking strands of story. The Colonel Shikishima uh, speaks to his head of research and they discover that Tetsuo is in fact in possession of powerful psychic abilities, uh, similar to that of a figure who they mentioned called Akira. Akira was responsible for the uh, destruction, the explosion that happened in 1988, triggering the Third World War. We're introduced to properly to the three. There are in fact three children with blue skin who are and white hair and wrinkles. Yes, they they are referred to as the Espers or ESPers. They are Kyoko, Takashi, and Masaru. They are working with the Colonel and his organization, seemingly to keep some some massive catastrophe from happening. Kyoko has had a vision of the destruction of Neo Tokyo. Those in charge of the city dismiss the concerns of the colonel and of Kyoko, and uh, the colonel considers killing Tetsuo. Tetsuo escapes and steals Kaneda's nice red motorbike and tries to flee with his, it's implied, girlfriend, Kaori. But they're ambushed by the clowns and there's a fight, um, very gritty stuff. Kaneda's gang uh, rescue Tetsuo and Kaori, but Tetsuo, kind of fueled by his rivalry with Kaneda, hating the fact that he's been rescued yet again, um, Tetsuo has a massive kind of attack of something um, and is taken away once again by the colonel's forces. There is a plan to rescue Tetsuo and other espers. It's revealed are people who are being experimented on by the government. Kaneda joins a resistance cell, which includes Kay. 
they make the journey to go and rescue Tetsuo um, and other and the other espers. Um, however, Tetsuo, um, meanwhile, is going through severe hallucinations and attacks of something as his powers start to grow, and he goes on a kind of killing spree. He learns of the existence of Akira, yep. whose name he's been hearing in his dreams and through all of his kind of attacks and headaches. Visions, yeah. Um, and he decides that he will go and find Akira. The colonel and everyone, are, they're, they're trying desperately to stop Tetsuo, but they can't. Then Kei and Kaneda arrive on a flying platform bike thing, uh, having gone through quite a traumatic experience in the tunnels and sewers underneath the facility to get there, that they they confront Tetsuo, but Tetsuo then kind of reveals the full, well, the fullest extent of his powers up to that point and basically flies away. Kyoko has told Tetsuo that Akira is actually encased in a cryonic storage facility beneath the Tokyo Olympic Stadium. Tetsuo has gone through a massive journey with his powers increasing. He goes through Tokyo basically furthering his killing spree, destroying things. He still shows signs of caring about people's welfare, mm-hmm. um, not allowing too many people to die, but act- actually through his, his, his uncontrollable power, lots of people end up getting hurt um, and he, he slowly loses his empathy um, and things like that. Uh, Neo-Tokyo's government basically has directed the military to try and stop Tetsuo at any cost. Um, Tetsuo also confronts his other gangmates and kills one of them. Mm-hmm. To Kanada's dismay and Oh yeah, horror. when Kanada finds out, he vows to avenge the guy who died. Yes, Kanada was Yamagata. Kanada's um, resolute to defeat Tetsuo and to kill Tetsuo. Yes. Uh, Tetsuo is also uh, mistaken for Akira himself um, by kind of cultists who view mm. Akira as a godlike figure. He rampages through and, and g- goes to the stadium and exhumes Akira only to discover, as the colonel kind of shouts at him through a loudspeaker, that Akira is actually supposedly dead. And all that remains of Akira is various bodily remains that have mm-hmm. been encased in jars and frozen for future scientific research. Tetsuo is is enraged by this, especially when Kaneda arrives, they have a fight of their own. Uh, everyone moves in on the Olympic Stadium to, to, to confront and try to stop Tetsuo. Shikishima, the colonel, once again tries to make Tetsuo come back with him so they can try and control the abilities. It's revealed that all humans have the capacity to access these powers, Mm -hmm. but that only some individuals have been experimented on to the degree that they have have accessed them. The Espers included, who are all children who were experimented on by the government, Akira being one of them. It's assumed that people like Tetsuo are the next the next step in human evolution, but that the government have been accelerating this too fast. The cataclysms have been caused by the overambition of the scientists. Unfortunately, Tetsuo's power goes out of control. He mutates into a massive kind of kaiju-esque creature that is horrific to see. Um, And the espers, seeing how bad things are getting, decide that they will revive Akira because it's it's kind of revealed that Akira isn't truly dead um, and just left this plane of existence to be on a different one back in 1988. And that's what kind of caused the the cataclysm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Akira appears, a singularity is created, which draws Tetsuo and Kaneda into what we assume is another dimension. The espers save Colonel Shikishima, 
and K is also saved. Canada gets out after experiencing the ch- the childhoods of the Espers and also his own and Tetsuo's revealing more mm-hmm. of their past together. Yeah, the, their connection. They were protecting each other. K asks Canada if Tetsuo is dead. Canada gives a somewhat cryptic answer saying that he doesn't know. But we're left to assume that death doesn't exactly mean what we would understand it. And lots of Neo-Tokyo has been destroyed. Basically, in this kind of rebirth of the city, they ride off on their motorcycle. Tetsuo is is the last voice we hear, mm-hmm. um, basically saying, I am Tetsuo. And we are left to assume that a new universe has begun somewhere else. Right. Yeah, so, there's a lot there. There is a lot there, not just the political intricacies and intrigue, not just the human elements, the human friendship represented by Tetsuo in Canada and how that friendship grows and they may not need each other anymore as much, but also the very sci-fi and supernatural elements of different planes of existence, psychokinetic powers, telekinetic powers. And I do have to say, once I finished watching the film... I had to remain in my seat for about five minutes just contemplating what it was that I had just seen and experienced. The film is just that strong. And yes, the confusing slash intricate plot does contribute to that, but it's just one element of the whole experience. And we will get into discussing this a lot more with our lovely guest later on in this episode. But for now, I think after that wonderful description of the plot, I think we can move on to how Akira performed at the box office. The actual film was released in cinemas in Japan in July 1988, and it made the jump to the USA on the 25th of December 1989 Mm -hmm. for a limited cinematic release. It then got a release on VHS cassettes in 1990 in the USA, and in 1991 was the first time that it actually got released on VHS tapes in the UK. For the time that it was released in 1988, Akira's budget of 1.1 billion yen, or 8.5 million US dollars, was the largest budget for an animated film. In the end, the film grossed 750 million yen in 1988 at the box office, which, although it didn't exactly help it break even domestically, the international sales and the international exposure it received through the limited cinematic release in the USA and through VHS tapes really made it a success, a commercial success. So it actually ended up grossing approximately $1 million in its initial run in the USA, and as I said, over $50 million at the global box office. By 1993, the film had also sold 60,000 tapes in the United Kingdom, 100,000 tapes in Europe, and 100,000 tapes in the United States of America. And what actually really assisted Akira in gaining that popularity was the time at when it appeared in the US market for comic book lovers. Because 1988 was around the time when a lot of other sci-fi dark series were coming out in the States. Namely, comics and graphic novels such as Watchmen, Batman the Dark Knight, with an N, not with a K, and Batman the Killing Joke. So a lot of the more darker elements of those comic books really assisted Akira in gaining a foothold within the American comic book market. I think I think it was a reflexive relationship because on one hand, you've got an appetite for slightly darker 
storylines mm-hmm. from conventional Western culture. Yeah. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but on the other hand, you've got a Western world that was starting to be opened up to ideas that were not purely Western. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're seeing the end of the Cold War um, in 89 into 90, and we're seeing opening up of all sorts of kind of international movements of people. Mm-hmm. Um and s- at least some of the barriers that have been set up in the first half of the 20th century going down, both physically with regard to things like the Berlin Wall, mm-hmm. um, but also people from, from countries that were enemies doing cultural exchanges. So I think that we've got several different worldwide movements that collide, which kind of ensure that Akira was going to be a success the world over. Absolutely. And, you know, in an interconnected time such as the 80s, where communication started growing between people within different countries and the marketing and the export of cultural products such as animated films was becoming an even larger affair, really, again, contributed to the success of this film. Mm. It was the highest grossing um, animated film out of Japan at the time. Um, weirdly enough, it was beaten in this respect by a film that came out only a year later, but it's another big name mm. in terms of worldwide anime. Um, it's Kiki's Delivery Service from Studio Ghibli. Ah, yes. Um, we've got two very different styles and tones of anime and two very different genres of story. Mm-hmm. I think that in every artwork, there are eras where people try to put limitations on what can and cannot be done. Because they set up rules and they say, this is what this means and this is what this means and this is what you have to do to fit in. Uh, But there are also cultural flashpoints where that changes. And I think that Akira and the 1980s more generally represents that. It definitely set the scene for all of the manifold series in particular that Hmm. have have made the jump um, and become popular the world over. I mean, particularly with regard to cyberpunk, we can talk about the Ghost in the Shell, Cowboy Bebop, Elf and Lead as being um, series from Japan that in the same vein as Akira. But um, there's a heck of a lot of other things. I mean, you you can see the influence of Akira on the Matrix. You can see it in um, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Yep. You can see it in Kill Bill. Um, you can even see it in more recent films like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um, and on TV in Stranger Things. If you ever hear someone referencing Akira... and uh, <laughs> in, Or a motorcycle. Anything, uh, well, anything with motorcycles in, it is possible that <laughs> there is a reference to Akira going on. Somewhere. Um, yes, Akira's influences and Akira's long-lasting legacy is easy to see in a lot of modern-day Western cinema and television series. And I believe that this is not just down to its box office success back in the late 80s, early 90s, but also down to the critical acclaim that it received when it premiered. Even nowadays, Akira retains a 9.1 out of 10 average on Rotten Tomatoes, so certified fresh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Very fresh. And some critics called it, upon its release in the West, a two of the fours, while others did admit the breakneck speed of the plot added to a confusing and befuddling sensation for the viewers. However, they still praise the film for its plot and for the weird 
multiple through lines that it connected. I mean, there are side plots that I didn't even mention in my in my plot uh, summary. Yeah. Um, there's quite a big one and an important one, which is about uh, Kei and Ryu and mm-hmm. the resistance cell they're part of. And the fact that 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 whole resistance cell is basically under the control of one of the members of the executive council, mm-hmm. um, a man who is clearly playing both sides for his own gain and to, to get hold of money. They They don't adapt at least half the material, if not no. more. The story is a heck of a lot more in-depth and a lot more complicated in the manga. It's very watchable, <laughs> for one reason or another. Very watchable. You are compelled. You are simply compelled to keep on watching and keep your eyes and your brain engaged with the pretty colours mm. and the wonderful music. And it was so instrumental to a lot of critics who actually made references to the music calling it wonderful, majestic, amazing, or just praising it in general. Um, critics have compared Akira to films which did come before it, have come since, even leading on to present-day films such as Mad Max, but also films such as 2001 A Space Odyssey and Back to the Future Part 2. I would go quite far along in suggesting that there is a connection between Akira and the 1927 German expressionist film Metropolis. Um, for example. Yeah, but then again, Metropolis is incredibly influential in all kinds of ways to the whole of cinema. I think we should talk about some of the people involved in the making of the film. Um, yeah, speaking of visuals, let's talk about the visionaries behind the vision. I, th- I think one of the reasons why there's so much material being put in is the fact that this film is directed by the man who indeed had written the manga. Yeah. And that is Katsuhiro Otomo. Otomo is a visionary. He's best known, of course, as the creator of Akira, but he's created other works such as Domu and well, another hey. steampunk uh, action anime film called Steam Boy. A little bit too much on the nose there, I guess. Well, you know, that's an, that's an English translation. Um, yeah, valid. But yes, he's obviously very much involved in the whole cyberpunk genre. He's been well rewarded for his artistry and his work. He is also very highly regarded in France, where he has received commendations for his contributions in the realms of art and literature. He's also been inducted into the American Eisner Award Hall of Fame in 2012, which is the comic book equivalent of the Academy Awards for films. The screenplay was co-written by Otomo himself and by Izo Hashimoto on the acting side of things. It's a big old cast, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we will say a few names, we won't say all of them. Um, I think we'll focus mainly on four voice actors who voiced the roles which we will then, later on, recast. That's true, that's true. I do think that there are a few performances that we won't be recasting later. We have made plans to recast four characters, but I I think that there are a few that need to be mentioned that won't be part of that. But first we've got Kaneda, Mm. um, who in the Japanese original was played by Mitsuo Iwata. I have to commend Iwata's vocal performance because Mm. uh, Kaneda is so compelling. Absolutely. And as I said earlier, represents some of the lightest moments of the script. Kaneda in the film, he's the definition of lovable rogue. (laughs) <laughs> with emphasis on the rogue, but also emphasis on the lovable. I mean, yeah, both equal, both equally important. Yes, definitely. He's almost the direct opposite of Tetsuo, as performed by Nozomo Sasaki. 
they are such polar opposites as characters, but the performances match that so well. Definitely. And indeed the music and the way that the music relates to those the two characters represents their rivalry so well. Yes, both of these voice actors have been active since the 1970s, 1980s respectively, and they have voiced other animated characters. So for instance, Mitsuo Iwata has given his voice to the character of Suzaku in Inuyasha or Tetsuya in Outlanders. Whereas Nozomu Sasaki has voiced characters such as Yukimaru in Samurai Champloo, Shadi in Yu-Gi-Oh! and Gekko Hayate in Naruto. Now, in the case of Kei, um, mm. who is the female lead, I would say, of the film, yeah. her voice actress is Mami Koyama. Now, Koyama, from what I understand, has quite history in terms of the other things that she's voiced. Oh, absolutely. I mean, looking at her credits, she has been involved in one of my favorite anime series to date, namely Shaman King, which has had two different animated versions, one in 2001 and one in 2022, and she has voiced the character of Lili Rara in both versions. She's also been involved in both Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z, voicing the characters of Lunch and Arale Norimaki, as well as... Detective Conan, or Case Close, as it may be known in some Western countries, giving her voice to the character of Vermouth. Uh, Shikishima, the colonel, um, is voiced by Taro Ishida, mm -hmm. who is unfortunately no longer with us, but his voice acting credits speak for themselves, and he has a wide array of such credits, not only animated, but also live-action film credits. Yes, from what I understand, he was also a... Buddhist monk or a priest, yes. um, as well as being a voice actor, which is pretty cool. Yeah, just goes um, to show how what you can combine with art. Yes, yes, Definitely. I agree. And actually, he did work together with Mami Koyama in other projects beyond Akira, because he also lent his voice to a character in Detective Conan, or Case Closed, namely Police Inspector Radish Redwood. But what is probably the most surprising part about Taro Ishida's series of voice credits is his involvement with the Hayao Miyazaki film, The Castle of Cagliostro, where he voices Count Cagliostro. Ah, that's cool. Mm. Very cool. Now, those are the main four. However, I will just talk about a couple of other voice actors, namely Fukue Ito, who plays Kyoko. Mm. There's not much information about her, but I do think that her performance is really, really good. Oh, absolutely. Because um, Kyoko's voice is so important and the way that Kyoko speaks through other people, um, I think that it's very a very important part um, and I, I, I value that performance a lot. There is information to suggest that she was only 10 years old when performing this role. And it kind of points out the fact that this film is full of talent from the voice acting world in Japan, and indeed in the dubs that were done both at the time and later, um, it attracted quite a lot of talent from the Western side of things. Yes, um, true. We didn't watch the dub, um, <laughs> and neither of us have, but I think that our guest later on has watched the dubs, yes. the dubs um, and knows about the quality of them, so we'll be able to go a little bit into that. Yeah, well, I think that is a wonderful way for us to then move on to the next point on our program, discussing why or how it was that you had seen the film up until this point, and how or why it was that I had been able to avoid it up until this point. 
I saw the film the first time while I was at university. I had heard of the film and I knew that it was an influential piece of media from the mm -hmm. anime world, but I had never seen it. I watched it out of a sense of, as has happened a few times with the films we've covered, I've watched it out of a sense of, oh, this is something that I definitely need to see. Okay. That's an important point. Um, I, I think that anyone who's engaged in film has those moments, or, or indeed any form of art. You kind of go mm -hmm. through and you think to yourself, ah, well, I haven't read or seen or heard this particular thing that everyone says, everyone, that a lot of people say is very important and influential. And it's, mm -hmm. it's one of those um, sensations where you feel like you don't necessarily have to like it. <laughs> and you're actually lucky if you do like it. And I'm, I'm not saying that that's the case for everyone, but I would commend this film to everyone. As would I. I mean, just like you, I had heard of this film before and I knew of its history and its significance in the realm of anime and in the realm of Western interpretation or Western recognition of anime as a genre. And yet I hadn't really taken it upon myself to watch it or experience it, mainly because growing up and even up until recently, I think I mostly connected anime with what we mentioned earlier being a sort of colorful, vibrant, jovial experience. So I had to slowly get an appreciation for and love of dystopia because the anime which I had previously experienced were mostly some of the more widespread animes with supernatural elements such as Naruto and Bleach or even sports animes such as Haikyuu or Kuroko's Basketball. But I think series such as Dark, Code Geass and Cowboy Bebop have really made me more attuned to this dystopian genre and really prepared me well for the experience of Akira. I mean, did you watch anime that much in your kind of childhood slash teenage years in, in Bulgaria? I first experienced anime at the age of eight when it started airing on TV and it was mainly just Naruto okay. airing on TV. That was in English. And I believe I also started experiencing or watching Yu-Gi-Oh! I mean, I've got to admit, Yu-Gi-Oh! was my first, um, my very first exposure to anime, hmm. way back. I think that it's possible that I had come across it before, Pokemon, etc. But Yu-Gi-Oh! was the first piece, piece of anime media that I was fully kind of attuned with and, and, and was following as a fan. Um, it's probably a toss-up between Yu-Gi-Oh! and Naruto. Mm. This kind of media, I think, has a capacity to tell stories that others can't. Yeah, definitely. Or to make accessible, relatively accessible, very complicated stories that involve multiple strands mm. um, that can interlink or can just stay separate. Yeah, that is extremely well said. And just how you're talking about accessibility, multiple strands, I believe that one of the most valuable ways to express a lot of different information from different sources is through discussion. So do stay on, listeners, for our discussion of Akira with our very special guest after this break. So, welcome back. Welcome back, Sam. Welcome back, Boris. Hey, hey. And uh, newly, welcome to someone we're very excited to introduce, who is our first guest, someone who is a dear friend of ours, and mm. is in fact the reason that I at least, and by extension Boris, have seen Akira at all. This person, is just a lovely individual who 
I am just so, so grateful to have in my life. And I am so, so happy that together, all three of us have been able to experience the really mind-boggling beauty of Akira. Yes. So without further ado, let's introduce Emily, Emily Brocklehurst. Brocklehurst. Hi, guys. <laughs> hey, Emily. Hi. Hey, how, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, we're doing well. Um, yeah. Do you mind if I ask if this is the first time you've been on a podcast? Yes. Yes, it is. I I am ready to party. I actually forgot that the film actually involved literally a government being taken out and basically taken over by military. And it's kind of glossed over. Yeah, because like, you know, there's a telepathic teenager on the loose that's killing everyone. There's bigger fish to fry. (laughs) Yes, definitely. However, you know, governments are still important. Mm. Uh, they are, but I, I think that... Even if they are dummy governments. For me, one of my notes that I wrote right from the beginning is how much the colonel is kind of created to be a villain to start with, and then you kind of... That image gets complicated. And then all of a sudden, he's fucking taking over the country. <laughs> Although it's kind of... Um, the government is not that important. It's just a group of old men talking at a table and there's not much else to it, and there are more powerful forces out there that are totally out of, like, human control. Yes. Absolutely. And actually, I did make a note of that, that it hasn't changed that much in relation to current politics with, you know, old white men sitting around the table making decisions. It's a very small group of people making decisions for a wider group that don't have any voice and they don't see themselves in that group. It's true. And I think that there's a point to be made potentially. There's the suggestion that World War Three started in 1988 in the story of the film, and I believe in, in the manga as well. But it, there's a feeling that although aesthetically the world's moved on and ahead and you've got um, Canada's very special futuristic looking motorbike and the city <laughs> looks very futuristic and... And there's lots of dystopian stuff going on. But in a lot of ways, the world hasn't moved on. It's, it's very much the 80s kind of just transposed onto a future. Because it was made in 1988, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, in the 80s, Japan had this economic boom. But I don't know whether, like, later on, in the late 80s, I feel like it started to decline a little bit. Oh, yeah. But I think that... Japan being seen as this kind of a technological wizard country. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, if, you, if, if you're thinking about a, a futuristic society, perhaps you're going to think about Tokyo and Japan first. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. people still do in well, terms of the iconography. Yes, okay, I can definitely see that. However, I think we also need to talk about how and to what extent Western imagery and the saturation of imagery from the States has informed our just common sense, and everything around us. Additionally, how much America and the States have shaped Japan in the current state as it is now, in the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, and how much Japan was maybe seen as a second wave of the Marshall's Plan initiative, which brought Germany back up in the 50s and 60s after the Second World War, and America did something similar to Japan in that period of time, leading to the 80s, leading to the technical boom, which you mentioned, mm. and then further on with the decline. I feel like I'm back in school doing uh, A-level Cold War history. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I feel like I'm trying to remember, like, my uni and, like, learning about, like, Japanese society in the 80s and, yeah, and, like, Marshall Plan. I feel like I heard that in school too. 
I think it is important to get into the context, but what is just as, if not more important, is to get on a little bit with our plan. Uh, regular listeners will be aware that there are some sections which we haven't done in order. We're slightly breaking our protocol. One of the things we've missed out is our little five-word summaries. Mm. Yeah, we, we would like to do these um, together with M. Exactly. So, um, Boris, would you like to begin? Yeah, absolutely. This film, this really adventure horror thriller it doesn't align itself with any one genre so the five words i've gone for are mind-bending animated masterpiece dystopia now the mind-bending doesn't necessarily only refer to tetsuo's powers where hey and the espas but it's just the way which your brain has been challenged upon watching the film and after watching it and you're just sitting there or at least i did watching the end of the film in the final credits roll thinking, what did I just watch? And what sort of world does this show me? And it is a masterpiece. Like, there's no way around the use of that term. The animation itself and the work which has gone into the voice acting is really top-notch and really conveys these dystopian feelings that society has just fucked up. Mm. It did one of those rare ones where they actually made the animation after the voice. I think traditionally you already have the animation done and then you do the voice acting, but here it was reverse. The performances are all really incredible and they match up so well to the way that the characters' facial expressions change and the way that their mouths move. I, I haven't seen the film dubbed I, and I don't think I would want to. I mean, you also have to watch the latest dubbed one because the first dubbed one is awful. I remember watching it and like they can't pronounce any of the names even closely right. There is no attempt to like make the English synchronize with the characters' mouths moving. It's just really, really bad. So you have to watch the later one. And I actually think that one's quite good. Like I can still remember I, I like bits of dialogue and stuff in it. Oh, amazing. As, I, as this was my first time watching it, we watched it with the Japanese original, but with English subs. It does have this kind of mind-bending, mind-warping mm. effect, um, especially given the ending's endlessly open-ended eternity. You mean visually? Well, visually, but also in terms of what has happened to Tetsuo. Where are yeah. they? I almost find it kind of frustrating how open-ended some of the, like, the subplots and everything are. Even the soundtrack, I don't even feel like they utilise that very well. How it just simply just fades in and out. It's just like here and there. And it's the same with the dialogue. I felt like it was very ambiguous. Like somehow we might... Oh, and in you. Oh, it's you. You were... You were there. And it's all very like open-ended. It's almost like too ambiguous. Well, they were working with a half-finished manga at the end of the day. One of my points is that it could have been better as a series if, yeah, the, if the manga had been finished because of course the manga has a much more extensive story also the manga's huge it's yeah. got so much more plot I think that in defense it's, it's, it's not a bad thing but no yeah. true I think one of the things that Akira may have started or at least made more popular is mm. that if you want complexity and confusing shit go to anime. In a lot of cases, even now, anime has some of the most confusing and complicated plot lines that deal with all kinds of different themes mm -hmm. and ideas all at the same time. Agreed. I think my five-word summary speaks to the influence of the film. Uh, the five words are anime's style and substance 
benchmark. Benchmark? Yeah. Okay. It's Akira or better. That's my standard. I think that some people see it that way. This is a thing that was brilliant and influenced the way that not just Japan, but the world saw this particular art form. Can you do better? As with any art form, things become self-referential. In anime, Akira is consistently referenced <laughs> in other series and other films. In the same way as, as in Western cinema, things keep being referenced. Precisely. Again and again and again. Yeah. Okay. The benchmark comment I find really interesting and I do see where you're coming from. I'm just thinking about the fact that it came out in 88, but some Studio Ghibli films must have come out before then, like Noshika at least. Yes, they had. We're dealing with two different aspects of the same art form. Yes, Noshika is dystopian and futuristic, but it's completely on a different track. True. You could say that Akira, rather than it being a benchmark for anime, you could say that it's a benchmark for cyberpunk cinema and sci-fi. Akira has had like a massive influence in Western movies. For example, recently I've been getting back into The Matrix and I can see like lots of influences there. Relatively recently, it was actually referenced on Rick and Morty. It must have also been referenced at the Sim by The Simpsons at this point. I'm sure if we looked hard enough, we could find an Akira reference in The Simpsons as well. Yeah. Then we'll know if it's hit the benchmark. Yeah, there we go. Is it, uh, the Simpsons began the year after Akira came out, 1989. Oh, wow. Two amazing cartoons in one decade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Excellent. So hopefully that's given you a bit of um, inspiration for your five word summary, whatever it may be. Okay, I've first got Supernatural. Nice. Ascension. And then with that comes Light. Because, you know, Akira, it means light. And there's a lot of different kinds of light in the film. Uh, and then you've got one of the lights being an atomic bomb. So you've got atomic... I don't know, would you necessarily call it atomic? I'd say it's atomic. Well, it, it definitely uh, yeah. uses that aesthetic, doesn't it? Absolutely. Atomic fantasy, I'd put those two together. Uh, destruction? Ascension. <laughs> Ascension. Supernatural. I think we dumped supernatural. Light. Don't we? Ascension, light, atomic, atomic fantasy, destruction. Oh, I didn't. I didn't say gamelan. My favorite instrument. Well, that that's probably a good way of segueing into the soundtrack. My favorite um, soundtrack ever. It was actually that that was the segue for me into mm. watching the film in the first place. And it, it all stems from a conversation that Emily and I had oh. while at university together. Mm -hmm. um, you were playing the soundtrack whilst doing something like writing an essay or something like that. I vaguely remember. That sounds like that sounds like me. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving us the benefit of the doubt and suggesting that we've been doing work rather than anything else. Um, <laughs> I was very surprised because I thought that Akira would been of one of the things that you've watched. Yeah, it's saying you like cartoons and you never watched The Simpsons, you know? Yeah, well, I, there we go. Th yeah. That's, that's why the benchmark comment. Have you listened to any of the other music that the people who've done the soundtrack have done? Yes, I have. Because that is also incredible. Yeah, I recently listened to one of the other albums by Geno Yamashiro Gumi. Oh, what a lovely pronunciation. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and it was just so inspirational, but 
haunting and mm. harrowing. I mean, again, it's like transcendence. It's it's about kind of tapping into the otherworldliness of life because uh, you know music is used. In religious ceremonies, to kind of like tap into the the otherworldly, and the album is called like Reincarnation, Ecophony Gaia, and they made this before the film, so I'm pretty sure that they were brought in specifically because of the film's themes. My general point about the music is that the film would lose so much atmosphere. Absolutely. If the music wasn't there. I 100%. mean, it's, it's beautiful to look at, but honestly, the opening of the film is made so compelling on all levels, apart from perhaps taste and smell. It's, it's this major sensory compelling experience that mm. drives you forward as they're driving on their motorcycles. And it's, it's, it's amazing. And I think that the music adds so much. It's like one of the most iconic scenes. That's the one that everyone remembers when they talk about Acura. It's that motorcycle scene. Yeah, yeah. When you said sensory, I immediately went to overload in my brain because I've heard that phrase used so much. However, in this instance, with Akira and the soundtrack, I don't think it's an overload. I think it's a great complementary spiel and working together combination of the elements to bring a whole experience to the forefront, to convince the audience be completely immersed in this. It's more so sensory immersion than it is a sensory overload, Yeah, I think. I think a strong recommendation for any listener, obviously watch the film. Definitely. But I think as much as watch the film, listen to the soundtrack in full, because watching the film will give you bits and pieces of the brilliance of the music. I know, because it only fades in and out and you don't get to hear like the whole like sequence of each song. Also, just on the on the gamelan, I don't know if you know this, but yeah, it's used for like a lot of religious uh, rituals. I can't remember. I think it's Javanese. In Southeast Asia, anyway, that's where the the instrument's most precedent. It's not a Japanese instrument at all. It's just um, it's used quite a lot by that Japanese group, Geno Yamashirogami. I read somewhere that um, the structure and the sequences of the music that's played when you play gamelan it follows the same pattern of a DNA sequence. Which is why when people listen to it, they experience this sort of ethereal, divine feeling when it's played during these religious rituals. The whole um, point of the gamelan is to like, it represents Tetsuo's DNA as his body kind of um, metamorphoses and his DNA sequence is literally changing as the music's played. The characters in this story, every single one of them is a mixed bag. And we'll get into some of them more when we talk about recasting, but I think we've talked about music a whole lot. And anime, in this sense, doesn't only just rely on music, it relies on visuals. It so, does. in it my does. notes, I have multiple notes of gorgeous visuals, stunning visuals. Why is this animated Metropolis from 1927? <laughs> There's a lot of connection. I mean, the, the first few shots of Neo-Tokyo with the buildings are very reminiscent of the shots that introduced the cityscape in mm. Metropolis, I think. Yeah. The big, tall buildings, the lights coming out of the skyscrapers. In a, in a lot of films, both in the animated world and in the live-action world, 
the, the cultural scars of the atomic attacks in Japan are clear to see again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But this film in particular seems to suggest that human beings are constantly looking for ways to experiment and find greater levels of power. Yeah. Even experimenting on children so as to discover a way of getting an upper hand or having access to greater power. The, the, the colonel's entire character is based on this idea of never letting Akira happen again, and yet partly because of his actions, it, it literally does. happens again. But, like, the destruction that happens at the end of Akira, when everything is blasted, all of the tall buildings are gone, like, capitalism is basically destroyed. I think that there's a lot of kind of religious imagery there as as well. But even if you take the, the religion out of it, it is still a very complicated um, morality tale, basically yeah. telling human beings don't push the boundaries too far or you don't know what the fuck's going to happen. Hmm. It could be very dangerous. And definitely don't experiment on innocence and bring innocence into the equation. I think that with a story like that that's about such high high-thinking concepts. Mm. The things that bring the story back down to earth and make it so compelling are the characters. Yeah, because you've got, like, you've got, like, four subplots. Precisely, mm. yes. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on. Mm. But even b- with the main Kaneda Tetsuo storyline, mm-hmm. you've got about three different... Whoa! Wow! Oh, my God! This is, this is now the end. Um, and there's another exciting thing going on, and, oh, they're all going to die. But no, they're not. Because really, conventionally, it could just be just about the about the boys, about the gang. And that would be a traditional story and it would still work. I think that Tetsuo and Kaneda as a duo, but the supporting cast, the Colonel and Kay in particular, mm. they make the story accessible. Completely. Because it, it could be, if you had badly written characters, this <laughs> could be a really complicated flop. And a basically. slog to get through. No one would be interested if you didn't... Yeah, it's all. it would be very pretty and very compelling visually. But if you don't have well-written, compelling characters, then no one is going to watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, no one's going to watch it and enjoy it. Tetsuo, Canada are more focused on their storyline as well as the Espers, whereas the Colonel, some of the other politicians, Ryu and Kei, are more focused on the coup d'etat... Or coup d'etats, if you call them that. Well, Plus the economic consequences. Yeah, they want show. They want revolution. And that's... Precisely. It, it does feel tacked on. But then again, I understand why. Because the film mm. has to do a heck of a lot of work with the Tetsuo Canada storyline. Totally. Um, but I think those are very interesting observations, which l- really lead us well into our next category. Our potential recast for the film... A possible suggestion is that in Neo-Tokyo, um, kids from particular backgrounds are filed into military training school as, Ooh, as yes. a substitute. Yeah, I that. That's Which like also, Sandhurst. Not that posh, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're, they're places that they're kind of filed into. Is Oh, you come from this part of the city, right? Well, you finish school straight in. Mm. Um, and that could also explain a way their physical capabilities in a way. They've gone True. through hard training regimens as part of their higher education. Mm. They are aware also of how to kill people, which yeah. 
makes a point about turning young people into weapons as well, which filters back into what the government have already been doing yeah. with the yeah. experimentation on children and young people. And maybe oh, yeah. this these military training academies is where they found a lot of their training subjects True. for yeah. the experiments. Yeah. I could also see Tetsuo not being able to be part of the military because of some sort of... Allergy. Uh, deformity. <laughs> Allergy? Uh, yeah, he's got asthma. He's, he's allergic to bees or something like that. Like something silly. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure a dystopian um, <laughs> society would care if you had the sniffles. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he polishes the, the shoes or something. But that will also be a very, very good reimagining of their whole big brother, small brother dynamic of how Canada is the one who protected Tetsu when he first arrived in the orphanage, question mark? That's what I'm starting to see it as. I just want to yeah. let the audience know yeah, that the characters which we'll be recasting for this new updated version of Akira are Tetsuo, Kanada, Kei, and the Colonel. But we're, we're going to join forces somewhat on the Colonel. My pitch, and I'm perfectly willing to hear others, would be Michelle Yeoh could play a kick-ass version of the Colonel. Yeah, she's incredible. I can really see that. I like that. She she would sell the authority very well, um, but equally she would sell just being completely done with the bullshit of the executive council. So yeah. the, the, the takeover just makes sense when it happens. And also I just, I'm in love with her. So yeah, I'm fine with that. Good. Also Excellent. seeing her name on any production these days will attract automatically get audiences bums on seats. Yes. Yeah. I think that was a big consensus on Michelle Yao as the colonel in this recast. And for the other three main characters of Tetsuo, Kanada, and K, each one of us has taken a character to recast. Mm -hmm. I can start us off with my recast of Tetsuo. Yes, the hardest job. A very interesting job considering the fact that we can have actors who are older than the people who are presented in the animated version. I've actually gone for Ryan Potter, who, at 28 years old, has already starred in not only animated series, such as Big Hero 6, he was actually the voice of Hiro Hamada, and in live action, no less, Ryan Potter has made a name for himself in the series of DC's Titans as Beast Boy or Gar Logan. And in this role, he not only has to present extreme physical prowess, but also has to display some readiness to be a part of some pretty gruesome transformation scenes as Beast Boy. Ryan Potter is actually also of American-Japanese descent, so I think it also lends itself to a cast which, with Michelle Yao would have a very strong East Asian representation of actors and creatives. Mm -hmm. A Tetsuo of any kind is uh, partly defined by their Kaneda. I had a lot to think about for this because uh, there was a lot of things in the original that I really wanted to see. I was really frustrated that like there was like not enough female, like strong female characters and things like that. And I also find it really fascinating, gender-bending um, characters for a modern adaptation. I just think if you, if you want to make them another gender, why not? Like, there's nothing, there's nothing stopping you. Gender um, is a construct, tear it apart. 
literally. I would keep Tetsuo as a, as a guy, but then I would make Kaneda a woman. So the leader of, of the friendship group is a woman and Tetsuo is insecure about that because of his fragile masculinity. And that's why he ends up with this power getting out of control. I was thinking for Canada, Bella Ramsey. I was thinking her just because I think she would make a really good leader. She's not too feminine energy. She's not got massive feminine en energy, but I wouldn't necessarily say she's that masculine either in The Last of Us. I can see her being so good at playing someone who is very strong physically and is like capable of like a lot of action sequences that that would happen in the film like a lot of fights I, th I think it's interesting that you mentioned bella ramsey's kind of um genderlessness because they slash she they do actually identify as non-binary yes um they use they're okay with any pronoun. oh right yeah I they're okay with that. any any pronouns being mm -hmm. used it doesn't really matter if Canada is a woman or non-binary, but I don't think that I would make them a man. That's all. So yeah, Bella Ramsey would still be relevant. They're very funny in The Last of Us, and Canada can be quite comedic, like his character. Super, super interesting. The character I've taken is Kay. I think that a non-binary actor could play that part really well. The person I've gone for, um, I think, has a different kind of ethereality to her. She's kind of famous as an actor, but she's much more famous as a singer. And the person I've gone for is Rina Sawayama. I think she is great. It comes centrally down mm. to look. Okay. I think she's got yeah. a very mysterious, and it has to be admitted, sexy vibe. True. Um, but she she kind of screams ethereality, but also a very gritty potential. The most prominent foray into acting that she's made so far was in John Wick 4. Oh, I didn't know she was in a film. She acted. She she, she has did? acted and the part she played, um, little trivia here, um, is actually called Akira. Oh, it's meant to be. Yeah, completely. It's too good a coincidence not to bring attention to. But completely true. I think true. that Rina Sawayama would play Kay mm. as a very sexy but very ethereal character who would certainly catch the eye of whoever was in the film with her. Another thing we need to clarify, as well as our casting choices, mm. um, is whether this remake would be animated or whether it would be live action. Oh. I mean, I always find live action adaptations disappointing. So to keep it safe, I would say animation. It just looks so good and I just can't imagine it looking good in real life. But yeah, I, I keep thinking of Scarlett Johansson's... Um, oh God, Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell. I know, like it... <laughs> I do, I do get they really tried. It just, uh, yeah, it just doesn't look good. Like, there are just some things that need to stay in animation. Guys, I've just realised the people that you have decided to cast, they're all Asian. And it's ironic that the one, that the, the person that I've chosen is white. <laughs> Maybe I might change my answer. Do you know what? Do you know what? Let's just go with Stephanie Shu from Everything, Everything, Everything. She can be a leader, right? Like she can, she's got that leadership quality and she's kind of comedic too. So I can see that. So yeah, let's get her on the film. Hold the room, hold the space, but also hold the presses because we've got some rankings for you. Yeah, we do. Hey. So um, to introduce you, Emily, we, um, we rank certain aspects of the film. Um, we have a few categories that we give ranks 
out of 10 mm-hmm. um, for the film, and then we come up with an overall ranking at the end of that. It's fun, but we also get some insights into the way that our individual minds work. Let's Completely. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Especially with the one weird element. Yes, the one weird element, um, which is always... Um, the one weird element? Yes, that we always have to come up with one weird element about the film um, and then give it a ranking. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll oh, come to okay. that in due time. Yeah, what, actually, why don't we start with that one? Start it off? Just, just uh, to break yeah, the tradition. absolutely. Yeah, I'm very intrigued. What does that mean? I still don't understand. One weird element. It can be anything from the film which isn't already encompassed within our other rankings. So it can be anything oh. besides voice acting, cinematography, music, writing and themes. So Akira, as an animated masterpiece, offers a whole bunch of weird straight elements to pick from. The use of silence in the film. You can also maybe look at the use of giant babies in the film. Or you can take a look at the body horror mm-hmm. in the film. However, I decided to go for a more technical and technological approach and element, namely the presentation of realistic motorcycles. You have these motorcycle gangs, one of them headed by Canada and others headed by people in clown masks. Mm. And that, A, reinforces the whole Clockwork Orange stereotype for me with the warring factions, but also I have a soft spot for it because of my love for the Shaman King anime and the character of Bokuto no Ryu and his gang of motorcycle aficionados looking for their Best place. Best place or sacred hang. Yes, I was really, really happy with the way the motorcycles were presented realistically, and yet technologically advanced in Akira. So I will give this a high score, but what I will dock it down points for is actually the red motorcycle that Canada has and uses. Because of all of those thoughts on motorcycles, and um, the lack of car games on motorcycles is another thing, I decided to give the weird element of realistic motorcycles, a 9 out of 10. For my weird element, I'm going to go with the film's brilliant body horror elements, Mm. um, which for an animated film are quite extraordinarily graphic and brutal, uh, particularly in the mutation scene Mm. at the end. Uh, Tetsuo loses his arm, um, but then he, he regrows... Well, he doesn't regrow it. He reattaches. He he creates an arm out of wires and machinery. Mm-hmm. It's particularly graphic. And, and Canada and Kaori... Oh, I love it. Yeah, they're literally caught up inside tissue of Tetsuo's wildly mutating body. And, and the fact that little hands and, and fingers start to come out of bits of his body that shouldn't be. As he's literally a giant baby as well. He is a giant kaiju baby. The the way that this is carried through the film, there are elements of it everywhere. Even in the kind of toy creatures which are created Mm. by the espers as they terrorise Tetsuo in his room. And I think that there are different kinds of horror at play. But the fact that the graphic body horror is always present. I have to give it a 10 out of 10. So, any ideas on your weird element, Emily? Um, how good was um, that politician foaming at the mouth when he was dying, who actually is called Nezu in the film? And I find that quite funny because Nezumi is mouse in Japanese and he looks like a mouse! 
him like scurrying away like the little rat he is with all of his money and then like he drops it all on the floor because you know he just has a heart attack all of that all of that corruption for nothing and it's quite satisfying yeah as he like foams with all of his pills in his mouth yes yeah, it's, it's, it's a weirdly artistic bit of the film the way that that death happens all he cares about and all he can see is 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 trying to trying to take another breath and he can't i'll give that a i think an eight out of ten because not enough foam not enough foam very poetic but not enough foam so in terms of our more conventional categories the first of them is acting I think that, for my money, the actors do an amazing job. Mm. Um, I think that the way that the voices are matched up to the animation is wonderful. Um, and possibly that's down to how they did it, in the way that they they started with the lines and then animated around the lines. Um, so I, I have to give it a 9 out of 10. If I'm being completely honest, I wouldn't really rate the acting that high because it's not one of the things that really stood out to me. I think, yeah, but like now that you've said it, I do think it's good. But then again, I do feel like, like you said, there's a lot of shrieking when they make mistakes and they're, and they're screaming. It's kind of frustrating. So I don't think it's that good. What would your ranking I'd be? I'd say seven. Excellent. I agree with both of your comments. And I actually do find, Emily, your comments really interesting to mention how you know, you're not that convinced by the acting and it's not one of the starring elements of the film because I do believe that a voice, no matter the language, can convey a lot through its intonation, through its timbre. And I found myself listening quite intently to what the voice actors were doing with the characters. And I do admit that the characters themselves are a bit skeletal in their facets and in the way they're presented they're not entirely three-dimensional and yet i do still believe i'll join sam in ranking the voice acting as a nine out of ten because it's still a brilliant element to the film the next category is cinematography which is god one of the best features of this fucking film oh my fucking god there were some moments where i was mouth open agape and i just i was so happy watching this spectacle on my screen (laughs) just yeah it's so gorgeous to look at and i know right i can completely see so many influences so many ripoffs and references i think i might have mentioned Yu-Gi-Oh! 5ds already but neo domino city neo tokyo motorcycles car games and motorcycles everything like that (laughs) the motorcycles the motorcycles yeah, the cinematography is just a 10 out of 10 for me. It's very high production, this film. So, you know, it took a lot of time, but you can see that it pays off. Yes. yes. Yeah, yes. I, I think that for me, the, the reason it's a 10 out of 10 is is that the cinematography and the design work at play is the most influential aspect. I mean, yes, the plot is very influential in terms of how it's affected mm-hmm. um, anime and manga stories, but I, I think that just the visuals... As, as referential as they are to, to steampunk and, and dystopian storylines more generally, it's, it, it just is amazing and, and, and gorgeous in the way that it looks. Um, and it's got to be a 10 out of 10. Like, I watched it without the subtitles, not really knowing what was going on, and I, and I still enjoyed it. 
I'd give it a 10 too. Excellent. We agree! Yay! <laughs> One brain. The next element, we've spoken about it at length because it just deserves, again, to be spoken at length, is the music. 10 out of 10. Go on. Go on. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I would definitely say 10 out of 10. I always listen to the soundtrack. Do you know what, though? The album itself, I feel like you need to listen to the whole album to really appreciate it, which is kind of annoying because it, I don't think that it gets used enough in the film. But, yeah, if when you actually listen to it as a full, it kind of, like, opens up even more ideas about the film and it makes you appreciate the film even more. But mm. I think you pointed out for me there why it can't be a 10 out of 10 for me. I mean, yeah. as a as a soundtrack for a film, if you listen to it by itself, incredible. But if if you take the way that it's used in the film, mm. it it's not a perfect score. Very choppy. Yeah, they don't they don't use funny. it in the right way. The music itself gets a ten out of ten. But if you look at the way it's used in the film, I'd want to take it down to an eight. So I'm going to split the difference and go for a nine. Very interesting. I am definitely taking all of your comments on board. But what I find pushes this music for me in this film to a 9 out of 10 rather than an 8 or a 7 is their use of silence. Mm. There are so many moments in the film where it's just silent, no music, no speech, nothing. You're just enjoying whatever's being put on your screen visually. And that holds so much power. Mm. It is truly breathtaking and it is so refreshing. I mean, so far, <laughs> Boris and I have agreed on every ranking let's see if that continues with Ooh, writing well. and themes which is the last of our individual ones before we give an overall ranking to yep. the film. for me the writing and the themes are so expansive and so complicated the film has trouble getting all of them in that's a good thing as well because as we as we said the, the complexity of it kind of adds to it and it adds to this mind warp I, th I think you could actually possibly make it more compelling if it wasn't as complicated. Interesting. I, th I think that this is a film that some people would be switched off from because it's complicated and there are so many different strands. Yes. But the people who are willing to be, who are willing to carry on and be devoted to trying to work out exactly what's going on, they will be rewarded by the end. But I think that they will be more rewarded if the story were fleshed out even more in a series. Hmm. I definitely agree with all of those points, and I do find that the themes are really high concept, but also realistic enough so that people can relate to the themes. It's just that the writing can be a little bit, not sloppy, but just jarring. And that's why my personal score on this would be an 8 out of 10. I think, yet again, I would also agree with you. I think that it... Guys, I'm also thinking 8. Hey. Clearly, you're the right. You're the right guest for for the perfect for our first, first guest because because we're all agreeing. <laughs> yeah, someone who doesn't challenge any of your ideas and just agrees with everything you say. Oh, if if only all guests could be like you. Um, <laughs> so the the final uh, ranking is the overall rank um, of the, the whole film. film as a film. I think I'd give it an eight point five. I think guests can have I an think, easier time than we can. I yeah. think guests are allowed to give oh, point five. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to, I want to have the same treatment as you guys. I want, I want the strict rules. No yeah. point fives, then. You've got to, you've got to go one side yeah. or the other. Give a full number. I want to give it a nine, right? Because it's such an influential film for for me, 
like it's it's always stuck in my head and it's made me think about really deep things and I love the imagery and I kind of strive to be cool like Canada and the music I'm always listening to the music um so I want to give it a nine but as a film I'm like frustrated sometimes uh yeah and for that I, that's why I'd give it an eight the fact that it holds up still its open-endedness and the frustrating elements of the film they kind of give rise to a potential mm-hmm. there's a lot of potential yeah i want to always recognize the potential I, I think for me you watch that film and it inspires thought yes it's frustrating how little of the music is is used but then again you go away and listen to the music i think there is so much artistry in here and so much quality that I personally can't not recognize it with a 9 out of 10. Listening to all of your comments and listening to your hot takes, maybe not so hot takes, on the film, I do recognize a lot of the strengths of Akira as an experience, as a cinematic experience. However, I think in the discussion with both of you, the weaknesses of this film have become even more apparent to me, and although I would love to give it a full score of 10 out of 10, I don't recognize it as being on that level. For the time being, and of course these are all subject to change, I am also going to give it a 9 out of 10. And Holy shit, we, we've agreed on every ranking. Oh, we did. yes. Uh, except for the weird element, which was different for both of us, so yeah. All right, all right. That's fine. <laughs> and what I usually like to do as well, after I give it my ranking, is to give some other let's say, subheadings for the film, longer than five words. So this time I have two sort of subheadings or summaries for the film that are longer than five words. The first of which is, friendships change and grow just like people do. So referencing Tetsuo and Kaneda's relationship and trying to see Akira as a sort of a allegory for friendship and how people change and grow with Tetsuo trying to gain some sort of independence from Kanada and Kanada not really being ready to let his little brother go just yet. Oh yeah, totally. I totally get it. Some friendships grow, some transcend into another universe and leave the other one behind. (laughs) Precisely. My next little summary is definitely longer than five words, but it says must experience film dedicated to showing the worst and slightly hopeful sides of humanity. Well, this is the first time we've had a guest, so Mm -hmm. we've been racking our brains to think of a way to kind of round things off. Mm. Um, But I thought about asking you a couple of questions. The first of which is, what's your favorite film? I always say The Terminal. Well, that's really cool, because that's a film we've actually discussed wanting to do on the podcast. To show him. Because I've never seen it. No way. It's one of the most quotable films in my brain. Um, And it's also something that me and my parents always quote. And it's just something that I've seen from my childhood. That is very cute. And the second question is, we've just done done a heck of a lot of rankings. Could you give us a ranking of your experience on the podcast? Out of 10. Out of 10. 15. But no honest. No, 15. Thank you very much. Thank you, dear. Because you guys have made me feel very, very welcome and open to my ideas, no matter how wacky they are. 
we're here we, for wacky ideas. We are the ones who usually have wacky ideas, so we welcome anyone. Yay! Love it. And we're one brain, so it's just really easy. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, I would say, I would just want to say one more thing um, about the about the soundtrack, about Gei no Yamashirogami. I just get so sad when I know that people don't know that it exists. Um, so I would recommend people to listen to all of their music. It's all on YouTube. And I would really recommend my favourite one. It's Disco in their album, Ecophony Gaia. I would recommend you listen to that and you just see a picture of an aerial photo of, of Tokyo in the night. That's what I would that's what I would say you should do after watching this after listening to this podcast. <laughs> Gorgeous. Amazing. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Em. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to have you, Emily. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. I'm so happy to be a part of this. We're it's been an honor happy. for us. Yeah, it's been an absolute honor. Completely. Um, and if we do cover the terminal, we um, know who to come back to. We know exactly who to invite back. Well, thanks, Em. Um, thank you, Emily. And um, yeah, talk yeah. to you soon. Speak soon. All right. Bye. Hello, and welcome back from our break after our discussion with the wonderful Emily Brocklehurst. Yes, it was so lovely to be talking about this. With her, yeah, it was just very inspirational and I'm just very, very happy that she introduced you to this film and you, by extension, introduced me to it as well. It's one of those things that um, you do feel the fear of missing out if you don't see, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, definitely feel that. Yeah. <laughs> and now, neither of us have to worry about that. No, no, we are part of the Akira Club, as it were. Definitely. Yes, uh, I believe that after this call and off the input from Emily, we won't trouble you too long, <laughs> but we would still like to um, mention a few of the thoughts that we noted down whilst watching the film that we didn't really get the chance to discuss with Emily. And then at the end, as usual, leave you with some trivia facts. The 2019 date that's put on the futuristic setting <laughs> It's a little bit alienating now, but mm. you do get through it relatively easy. Akira did foretell the thing about the 2020 Olympics, so... Um. That is just so odd. Um, and I'm actually going to jump ahead and actually mention the fact that there was an advert in 2020 when the coronavirus pandemic was just beginning. The authorities, I believe, ran an advert where they called for the delay of the Olympic Games in Japan into 2021 using pictures from Akira. What? Because the suggestion is that if we don't delay it, then Tokyo is going to be destroyed by, Quite possibly. by um, a malfunctioning teenager. <laughs> malfunctioning teenagers. They are a force of nature, you never know. Yeah, very true. Very sh very Something true. I noted down from the very beginning of the film was friendly dogs on TV do not represent reality. I think I've actually got that um, that same thing, because I said the cut, uh -huh. the, that particular cut from happy, happy dogs to snarling, angry dogs mm. is a very good cut. <laughs> um, really clever. Definitely. Kaneda being led by his dick is both hilarious and <laughs> is one of those moments where you're like, yeah, men are never going to stop being like this. And indeed, humans are never going to stop being like this. Um, Just being led by carnal desire. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel that. And hey, that's a recurring theme from even our previous episode on The Peach Thief. 
I think there's there's a point to suggest that this film was very influential in the development of the cult uh, body horror film Tetsuo the Iron Man, which came out of mm. Japan the year after in 1989. Yeah, again, there's a heck of a lot of kind of machine and man imagery in that film um, in the same way as there is in Akira. Neither of these films are a watch for anyone particularly young or anyone who um, <laughs> isn't very good at blood and gore. Let's put it that way. I think Tetsuo as a creation of higher being and transcending normal mortal bounds and limitations plays really well with some of the ending scenes of the film because I've noted down here that the final 20-30 minutes of Akira really reminded me of biblical scenes with inclusions of rays of light, floods, and also the scientific creation of an entirely new universe, kind of combining something, yes, created by mortal scientific hands, and yet those same hands being way too close to a omnipotent creationist power mm, and wow. the danger which comes with that which is emulated through tetsuo in terms of the amazing soundtrack um emily mentioned um other albums that geno yamashirogami had made and Shoji Yamashiro as an individual in terms of um, music production. So Akira came in between and was composed directly for, it was an original work made for the film, um, but it's directly between Ikofani Rina from 1986 and Ikofani Gaia from 1990. And in those three kind of interrelated albums, yeah. they're probably the most influential work that Gaino Yamashirogami made. Um... Uh, which isn't to say that their other work isn't influential. It's imp incredibly powerful and influential. And go and listen to it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. But in those three albums, there is a lot of the same blending of Indonesian gamelan um, with Japanese ritual and no music. Every, everything is so immersive and the world building mm. is complicated, but very powerful and immersive. And I think that the fact that both from an artistic perspective, but also in terms of um, how we're drawn in from the characters, the visuals and everything. It, it's it's very good at carrying you along with it. And when we watched it um, together, there was this moment where both of us kind of, it, me included, having seen it before, <laughs> but you definitely it was like, oh, I need a few minutes um, before I can kind of do anything else. Completely. But also a thought just came to my head. Wouldn't it be amazing? I mean, yes, overwhelming to fuck, but fucking amazing nonetheless to have an immersive experience similar to the ones that have been created for artists such as Gustav Klimt or Vincent van Gogh based around Akira. Well, they've done one for the films of Studio Ghibli. So I think I think it would be possible. I think it would be a very different experience. So yes, I think that covers a lot of the more prominent thoughts that we had when watching the, watching film, the film, making our individual notes. With that, I think we only have one section left to cover. Yep. Namely, trivia facts about yes, the film. Yes, trivia, trivia. I think one of the main trivia facts about this film, which could be known to a lot of people, but it's still very important to say, and quite noteworthy, is the fact that there are two different US dubbed versions, one from 1989 and one from 2001, with different voice actor casts, and most notably, different names given to some of the characters in the 1989 dub version. I think in that dubbed version, the character of Kay is called Kai, and 
The character of Ryu is called Roy. For me, one of the biggest things about it is that this film was a it, it was a joint effort in terms mm. of the production by seven different conglomerates. Wow. Um, the production company was Tokyo Movie with Shinsha um, Entertainment, which is now known as TMS. Behind the scenes, there were seven different companies that came together um, to form a committee, interestingly, seeing mm. as there is an executive committee in the film itself. The committee consisted of Kodansha, Mainichi Broadcasting System, Bandai, Hakuhodo, Toho, Laserdisc Corporation, and Sumitomo Corporation. Um, money was put forward from all of them. Um, for financing, but also promoting the film, marketing-wise. Therefore, it had more money, probably, than any previous production of an anime film. Um, it was worth it. It was well worth it. Oh, it was worth it. Most of the scenes in the film were constructed from 12 to 24 drawings per second. Wow. So it results in something approaching photorealism. Yeah. In animated form. That is just brilliant. That is amazing. Actually, I have a trivia fact regarding some of the drawings and some of the animation. Namely that Akira, as a film, comprises over 160,000 different images and 2,200 shots. Akira, as a film, uses more than 300 colors, about 50 of which were created specifically for the film in order to create the effect of a real city at night. This includes the very specific Akira Red, the iconic finish on Canada's jacket and bike, which is a heavily sought-after hue in the world of fashion nowadays. I mean, I can understand that. Canada's jacket is just fabulous. <laughs> um, and his motorbike is also pretty wonderful to look at. Um, although I think it's interesting that both he and Tetsuo are associated with the colour red, because Tetsuo mm. grabs a red cape yes. and wears it. And I think that not only is there the connection to Western superhero figures, well, and well, Western superhero Magneto, figures, very Magneto. But there's also the fact that it's a red cape. Is it Tetsuo taking on his own red jacket and, and kind of saying, I've moved beyond Canada, and yet in this one move, proving that he's still kind of attached to their rivalry and their relationship. Or is Tetsuo, and by extension Katsuhiro Otomo, trying to create a reference back to ancient times, back to Roman times, and the capes that were worn by senators and consuls? <laughs> I'm not sure about that one. We shall have to ask the audience. There are a heck of a lot of things that represent the cultural impact of the film. There is the very famous Akira slide. Of course. Um, the Akira slide is a very prominent scene where Kaneda slides into the, the view of the camera on his motorbike, on its side slightly. Mm. And this is a sideways slide and the, the bike comes to a halt. Um, With and a lot of sparks. Trails of smoke and sparks and things like that. It has appeared since then in a heck of a lot of pieces of media because everyone was like, oh yeah, that's cool. From Batman the Animated Series, um, also on, on Batman um, in The Dark Knight, Gargoyles, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Super Robot Monkey Team, Hyperforce Go, Teen Titans. Lovely series, that. Uh, Gurren Lagann, Star Wars The Clone Wars, Yu-Gi-Oh! Lupin the Third versus Detective Conan, Pokemon Diamond and Pearl, Durarara, Adventure Time, Clarence, Ready Player One, and Marvel Spider-Man. It's massive. It's also in X-Men Origins Wolverine. It's it's one of these single shots that is incredibly influential to, to think, oh, where did that start? It started with Akira. Yeah. 
Um, you just see that recreated all the bloody time everywhere. Mm. And that is also a great reference and a great way into, thank you very much, my further trivia fact about the use of motorcycles within the film mm. and its inspiration from the Bosozoku movement in Japan in the late 70s and early 80s could have also been inspired by the mountain rockers movement in the late 50s, early 60s from the UK. And it was a subculture, a youth subculture, which was based around motorcycle gangs and really their infighting amongst each other and amongst their different groups. And I think they also had some relations to the Yakuza clans and the Yakuza Mafia. We mentioned some kind of links between Studio Ghibli, uh, well, links in our minds between Studio Ghibli and Akira. There is actually a pretty prominent connection. One of the film's key animators was a woman called Makiko Futaki. Um, she's uh, no longer with us, sadly, but she did become a lead animator on Kiki's Delivery Service the next year, 1989, hmm. uh, Princess Mononoke, and Howl's Moving Castle, three of the most prominent Studio Ghibli films. And I think that Akira and this time in the production of anime, it represented a moment when old masters of the craft of manga and anime were suddenly working with younger people who were coming in to the industry um, and they were sharing ideas with each other, um, not only about the themes and ideas that anime could actually put out into the world, but also in terms of how to draw, how to how to make this look as good as it possibly could, and how to define particular styles. I think that as time has gone on, anime has broadened out into lots of different artistic styles that are actually very different, despite being from the same origin. Point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as technology has advanced, that those artistic styles have actually broadened even further. But what I would say is that this was the time when they were solidifying what anime meant. In a way, they were still making art that wasn't really aimed at anyone. It wasn't aimed at a particular audience, so it could be enjoyed by everyone, if mm. that makes sense. Um, but they were also starting to define who the audiences were. And I think that that's really... That, that's, it's a, that proves how influential a time it was. And it must have been so exciting hmm. to work on this project and on projects at the time to be defining an art form or at least a new era in the art form. Just an extension on what you just said. You mentioned this new generation of anime creators and animators learning from old masters. And you talked about bridging this gap. I think this is also a very important point about the audiences which were targeted by anime films previously, before Akira, and the targeting of audiences which were slightly more mature, slightly older, and ready to receive more mature political themes. So I think in that sense, Akira also acts as a bridge between these different audience groups. Mm. And I believe that is an extremely vital role for this film to have played, which makes it even more interesting, and I think this might be our last fact of the podcast, that both Steven Spielberg and George Lucas passed over on bringing the film to an American audience via a dubbed version. Hence why the dubbed version of the VHS tape of Akira was produced and marketed and distributed by Streamline Pictures. Mm. Yeah. Well... Even people like Spielberg and Lucas can be wrong. Definitely. Uh, no, no mention of some of Spielberg's flops. Um, or Lucas's. Or, you know, the prequel trilogy <laughs> in Star Wars. 
hey, hey, we have so much time ahead of us to talk about those things. And we would like to thank all of you lovely listeners for staying with us and hopefully you've enjoyed this new format of re-encounters with our guests, with our changed up ordering of our points and of our discussion. But do let us know if this is something you would like for us to continue. Do let us know your opinions and thoughts. Get in touch with us, please. We are so very open and we would love to hear back from you and improve our podcast potential. Feedback is massively important um, for us and however you would like to send it to us, let us know. Thank you for joining us on our journey into Akira this time and for in the last few episodes, um, joining us on journeys through various foreign language films. Um, We've done a kind of a trilogy um, of moving through important to us um, and to a lot of people Non-English language, language. Non-English language films that are important to us, but uh, in particular, but to many other people as well. Um, so thank you for joining us on that. Yeah. Keep on being wonderful people. And as we said, let us know how you have felt listening to this latest episode of Re-Encounters. Re-Encounters.